Don't blink. Don't turn around. Don't even move. Now, you'll witness the most blinding horror ever seen. How far can you go before your eyes leave your body? Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, what's going on? It's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures on all the social media platforms. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Podcasts. Uh, if you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible. Sorry, Jim, we're uh, getting into January, so I, I have a good feeling what we're talking about today. That's right. It's January Giallo. It's my favorite event I get to do for Cinematic Void. I started this in 2017, which, you know, that was the first January for Cinematic Void. And I just had this idea. It's like, I love Giallos. I wanted an excuse to show them, so... Just came out with this thing, January Giallo. Had a nice ring to it, and it just kind of took off from there. So before we get into what we're going to be talking about specifically for this January Giallo podcast, I should mention, since it's January Giallo, and I was really hoping to be back in the theaters by now, but of course, nope. We're going to be doing this one virtually this year. And thanks to our friends at Severn Films, we have two special screenings lined up for you. On January 8th and January 22nd, we're going to be doing January Giallo on the Cinemadness movie. So mark your calendars, make sure you're ready for those, because I'm showing two, I'd say, yeah, two of my all-time favorite Giallos are going to be playing on that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Even Although I would love to be in a theater showing rare 35mm prints, you know, January Giallo needs to go on. So, before we get any deeper into, like, the specific topics we're going to be talking about, I just kind of want to throw out a little primer for those of you who aren't necessarily familiar with January Giallo, because, you know, not everyone that listens to podcasts lives in L.A. January Giallo was just, like I said, it was just an idea, an excuse to show Giallos, and for that first year, 2017, I was doing my shows at the Egyptian Theater, and we had a smaller theater within called the Spielberg Theater, which, yes, was named after little Stevie Spielberg, and... I was like, you know, I wanted to show a bunch of different things, but I knew I had to start off strong. So, that first year, I started off with, on Friday the 13th of all days, I showed Dario Argento's Deep Red, that little theater. It's a pretty decent print, really happy. And then I followed up with two, I'd say kind of stone-cold classic giallos. I did The Night That Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, which was a weird print. It was half Eastman stock and half Fuji film, so, like, the color shifts a lot. The Eastman stuff was faded red. If you've been to a 35mm screening and you've seen like an old print, you'll know what the Eastman fade is because it's like, the print looks fucking red. And it's like, why is the film red? Why was that a choice? It's like, no, because as film, that particular stock of film aged and then like, they kept using it until maybe 82, 83. It just, it started losing its color and turned red. And then Fuji stock from there would, wouldn't turn red. It would turn kind of brown, but it would keep its colors a little better. So we're watching this print of The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. And it was like, red-ass fucking film. And then it would cut to a different scene. It would be like, you know, you see some colors, a little bit of a brown fade. And the last movie I showed was The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. Sergio Martino classic. One of my favorites. That was a little faded, but like, other than that, the print was pretty good. And then I wasn't sure what I was going to do after that. But 2018 rolled around and like, I had a couple slots. So I was like, I'll do another Giallo, you know, January Giallo. And I only got to do one screening for that one, but it was in the big room at the Egyptian, which is the regular. I ended up showing What Have You Done to Solange, which is one of the great kind of slow burner giallos. And then 
a little bit itchy. I ended up showing a Spanish film production. I think it was a Spanish-Italian co-production called um, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, starring the great Paul Nashi, best known for being the you know, the Spanish Wolfman and doing other creatures like that. But this was like very Giallo-esque. It also was released under the title House of Psychotic Women. Really, really excellent film. If you haven't checked it out, I think Shout Factory has it included on one of their Paul Nashy sets. For year three of January Giallo, originally all I was going to show was Dario Argento's Tenebrae, which is Stone Cold Masterpiece. And I was going to mix it with the, pretty much the, the, the American equivalent of a Giallo, which was Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. And then programming said, like, hey, we like this idea of pairing Argento and De Palma. Why don't you do a whole series? So January Giallo for that year ended up becoming Argento versus De Palma. And I showed Carrie and um, Suspiri together. I showed Blowout and Inferno. And, of course, Tenebrae and Dress to Kill. And, yeah, honestly, the only Giallo I really showed was Tenebrae because none of the other ones are. But as a marketing ploy, it was a good way to get people into it because, you know, that was probably the most successful event I had done at the Cinematheque at that point was those three screenings, like, consistently. I've had shows that have sold out. I've shows that have done well. But, like, three nights in a row, back-to-back-to-back of, like, huge crowds, it, you know, it kind of helped make January Giallo a thing. And people got really excited for what I was doing for 2019, which ended up doing, I did two shows in the Spielberg. I did two 16mm screenings. One was Dario Argento's Cat of Nine Tales. And then I also did one of my bucket list titles, which was um, Strange Shadows in an Empty Room, a.k.a. Blazing Magnum, starring Stuart Whitman, John Saxon, and Martin Landau, and Mia Farrow's sister, Tisa, best known for being in Zombie and Anthropocophis. Cool. And then the, the, the creme de la creme was like, this is probably... I'd say one of my favorite voice screenings I ever got done was the Giallo Marathon I did that year. It's five movies, all 35mm prints, two of which were Italian language prints. We had to do soft subtitling. If you don't know what soft subtitling is, it's basically you have a projector running and someone's literally going through the subtitles as people are speaking live. It was a really cool thing to do. We showed Dario Argento's opera and Lamberto Bava's A Blade in the Dark, which I don't think it played anywhere since maybe it's one off theatrical run maybe in the 80s. Also showed Sergio Martino's Torso, Lucio Fulci's Black Cat, and one of the best like Euro crime giallo hybrids. What have they done to your daughters? So for 2021, again, as already stated, I really wanted to do another big Giallo marathon or just a bunch of screenings because there were some other like prints that had popped up that I hadn't seen before that I was like really excited to be able to show. But again, moving on, doing it virtually this year. And this kind of brings up a point for January Giallo. There's been a blind spot for me and not sure why. Well, there's a couple reasons why and I'll get into it. I've never showed any of the Giallos by Umberto Lenzi. Now, Lindsay's probably best known for doing Cannibal Free Rocks and one of my all-time favorites, Nightmare City. And he also made a ton of giallos in the late 60s, early 70s to the mid-70s mixed in with the Eurocrime stuff he was doing. Originally for the giallothon, I was going to do Orgasmo, which was his first giallo. There was a 35mm print, but I ended up switching it out because of March of this year for the Severance Super Shock um, pop-up film festival that they did previous year they were going to show a new restoration or Cosmo. so i pulled it out of my lineup because like hey i'm going to show a new restoration that's pretty cool it was going to be uncut and then the world shut down so that didn't happen and the bigger thing is is like i love Inberto Lindsay, and i've never shown any of his fucking films during the void the the only time i sorted it was pre-void when i did a screening of burial ground with nightmare city but other than that just it hasn't happened and it's kind of kind of bums me out because like I feel like that's a huge blind spot for me. But it's not from lack of trying. Like I said, Orgasmo was supposed to play the Giallathon. That was supposed to play for that Severin um, triple feature. I also tried to do his um, Eurocrime movie that Grindhouse put out, New Restoration of the Tough Ones. Tried a couple different ways. Tried to package it with Campbell Free Rocks and Nightmare City as a triple feature. Just never happened. Speaking of Nightmare City, I tried a couple different times to show that. So, I'm yeah, I've never shown an Umberto Lenzi movie. I'm going to try to make good on that at some point, theatrically, virtually, or whatever. Actually, the, the I think the third movie I showed as a cinematist movie was actually Roto Lindsay's Hitcher in the Dark. So 
uh, done at least once virtually. So we're going to be doing four separate episodes for January Jow. We're going to be doing two on Umberto Lindsay and two on one of my all-time favorite filmmakers, regardless of genre, Sergio Martino. For the Lindsay ones, this is going to be the first one. We're going to be talking about some of his later era giallos. And then we're going to do another episode with Friend of the Void and filmmaker, director of Girl on the Third Floor, Travis Stevens, where we're going to talk about his working, his quartet of films he made with actress Carol Baker. And then we're we're going to do two episodes for Sergio Martino, and we're going to be joined on those Martino episodes by Friend of the Void. And I guess he's become a frequent guest now, I'd say. More so, this is going to be the third and fourth time he's been on the show, I think, at this point. It's um, Repulsion Scott Carlson, so he's a big fan of Martino, and I'm really glad to have him back and just nerd out about this shit. So, there's your January Giallo primer. And we're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we're going to start talking about some of um, Umberto Lindsay's Giallo on the Cinematic Void podcast. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into cinematness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinematness Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. We're talking about the Giallos of Umberto Lindsay here on the Cinematic Void podcast for January Giallo. Up first, we're picking a film from 1971. Again, all these films are going to be directed by Umberto Lindsay, so I don't need to tell you that each time. The film stars Greek actor Irene Pappas, who you can see in Guns of Navarone and The Message, which was directed by Mustafa Akkad, who's, of course, better known for being the producer of the Halloween franchise for many, many years. The film also stars Ray Lovelock, who's been in such void favorites as Living Dead and Manchester Morgue, as well as other movies like Almost Human, Lucio Fulci's Murder Rock, Autopsy, and even Fiddler on the Roof, to name a few. And we also have Ornella Muta, who played Princess Aurora in Flash Gordon. The film was also produced by Carlos Ponte, the man who brought you Dr. Gervago and Torso! 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 So we're talking about Oasis of Fear, a.k.a. An Ideal Place to Kill, a.k.a. Dirty Pictures, a.k.a. Deadly Trap. This is one thing when we get in all these Lindsay movies. They all have a lot of different titles, which adds to a lot of confusion, which we'll get into a little bit later. For those of you who haven't seen the film, it's about two pornography-peddling hippies from Italy who run out of their material, so they start taking dirty pictures of each other to add to their stock of smut. While on the run from authorities, the pair get invited to the home of a middle-aged woman named Barbara. She involves them first in sexual games, then later in a convoluted murder plot where she tries to frame the hippies for killing her husband. In a lot of ways, Oasis plays out like a bit of reverse of Lindsay's Orgasmo. In Orgasmo, a countercultural couple try to drive an older woman to suicide, and in Oasis, the older woman tries to pin a murder on the countercultured couple. But like Orgasmo, Oasis tackles a lot of class war and social political aspects, being wrapped up in a nice sheen of sleaze. Now, you just watched this movie for the first time. What are your thoughts on it, Nick? I did. Oasis of Fear totally kicks ass. I love this movie. It's a, it's a whole lot of fun. Um, I highly recommend it. Uh, however, I, don't, I personally didn't catch where, like, like why is it a giallo? And uh, and I and I wanted to get into it a little bit about that. There's there's no uh, you know there's no gloved killer. I see no like straight razor. It, it avoids all all of those tropes. So aside from being like Italian and from this kind of era, uh, I was curious like what exactly does make this a giallo or a gialli? Well, the thing about giallos that a lot of people don't understand is like people have a lot of the Argento style giallo in their head, which is you know black glove killers, straight razor, raspy boys calling people and trying to scare them. Like that kind of stuff. But what a giallo is, is just a murder mystery. And in Oasis of Fear, obviously there is a murder mystery. Giallos kind of came out of the tradition of like, there was a series of films made in Germany in the 60s, they called Creamies, which were based on like pulp novels, usually by Edgar Wallace, who's best known for writing like King Kong and stuff like that. And there was a share of black love killers and stuff like that. And those, believe it or not, predating most giallos. But 
a lot of giallos, especially the the 60s and early 70s one, didn't necessarily have black glove killers. They were just murder mysteries or like, you know, thrillers that were kind of tied in. And like sometimes they got really political, but they some of them just lean into the weird sexual politics of the day, which this one definitely does for sure. It's, you know, you know, not every giallo has a black glove killer. And funny enough, as we're going to be talking about these Umberto Lindsay giallos, there really isn't any black glove killers in them. There's maybe two, and then there's a red glove killer, which we'll be talking about later in this episode. And this one also, uh, to its credit, isn't as convoluted as most John, as most giallos are like this one it's it's you can there there there's a plot that you can follow i mean there there is giallo logic there's things <laughs> giallo logic i i love that term it's like or, the movie doesn't make fucking any sense yeah but but this <laughs> this one's pretty straight ahead because it's just you know is a hippie couple on the run this is a horny ass movie by the way <laughs> this is a sexy ass movie i mean that that was the other thing about like those Lindsay Giallos, it's like they're very, he definitely went more on the sexual end of it. And a lot of Giallos have sleazy sex and things in it, but like he leaned in it more, especially when we're going to talk about the stuff he did with Carol Baker. There was a lot of that stuff. And this is kind of from an era where like Lindsay was still getting decent budgets for when he's making movies. And it, it's very, it's very polished. It's sleazy, but it's also very polished and, you know, it's it's I, it's a really excellent movie. I actually hadn't seen it until this year when the Blu-ray came out, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a few. But it's it's kind of interesting because, like, you know, a lot of people think of Lindsay. They think of maybe the later stuff and the cannibal movies because, like, at a certain point, he just went off the rails and just made bonkers-ass movies that, like, it's like, did you even fucking care <laughs> at some points? <laughs> You kind of question, especially when you read interviews with him when he like discusses a few of those films. It's it's really wild, but like this one is like really well directed, really well done. It's not a giallo in the sense of black glove killer, obviously, but it operates in that same spectrum. And like I said, we're not going to be really talking about black glove killers when we talk about the Umberto Lindsay giallos because that's just not what he made, and that's that's kind of what made him interesting. It's also what kind of made the Fulci giallos interesting because Fulci didn't really use black glove killers. Hmm. They're more like psychosexual dramas and thrillers and stuff like that. Ray Lovelock sings the main theme, How Can You Live Your Life? Ah, yes, I wanted to bring this up. I love the theme. It's just like a, you know, late 60s, early 70s, like psychedelic pop kind of vibe. Like, uh, But yeah, so he's singing the, the theme, you know, at the beginning, but then it plays throughout the film and other people sing it. Yeah, it, it, it's a really cool choice. And, you know, it it's a really interesting movie and like it it's probably the least known of the Umberto Lindsay Gialli. If you want to check the film out, Mondo Bacabra put an excellent Blu-ray, highly recommended, which leads into this other particular quirk with Lindsay's filmography, especially Giallo's titling. So Mondo Macabro released Oasis of Fear under one of its alternate titles, An Ideal Place to Kill. When Severn announced their own Lindsay Carol Baker box set, there's a movie in there that's called A Quiet Place to Kill. People freaked out and started writing Mondo Macabro. It's like, what the fuck, man? This movie's coming out in the box set. I don't need it on there trying to cancel the orders. Not realizing two completely different movies. You know, this is a thing that happens with Lindsay a lot with these movies. Because funny enough, Quiet Place to Kill was also released as Paranoia, which makes things even more confusing because his other... One of his other Giallos, Orgasmo, was also released as Paranoia. So he has two films, the same exact title in his filmography, depending on where you see it at. But so, what, so when Mondo released it as an ideal place to kill, like why did they change the name from Oasis of Fear in the first place? Like why? Why does this? Is it? A, it's licensing issues. Like what is all this? No, I think it's. I figure. I think they were just trying to figure out the best way to market the movie, which is why these movies got retitled anyway, and like a lot of. You know, horror movies got re-released and repackaged with different titles and, like, marketed, you know, their marketing was for different markets. Like, you know, you could see this movie on a 42nd Street Grindhouse with a title and then would play, like, the Southern Drive-In circuit with a completely different title, maybe different edits. Like, one version might have had all the violence, one might have had all the sex. Like, Ah, gotcha. So, I I think they just went with an ideal place to kill because they thought, like, the title would stand out a little more. But I, I guess they weren't prepared for people to be, like, confused by... A quiet place to kill. It seems like a lot the uh, the multiple title films. This is a very Italian thing. Mm-hmm. Why? 
It just <laughs> it's the it just depends on the territory, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you're t- you're talking about a country that like released Terminator Two and Texas Chainsaw Massacre Three for movies that had no relation to those movies. Much respect. I mean, <laughs> you got to remember when we talked about this on uh, the Fulci, um Zombie Quartet episode is like Zombie was released as Zombie Two, the cash in on Dawn of the Dead, which was released as Zombie. So get get that paper. Get that paper. It. But either way, it just it just makes everything fucking confusing. So, I I, I think Oasis of Fear is a better title than an Ideal Place to Kill because it's just like it, it sounds like the, so it's got the Union Jack on the back of his jacket. Yeah, Oasis of Fear. I like the band Oasis. <laughs> Let's fucking go. I mean, yeah, but like it, it just seems I an Ideal Place to Kill means someone has to think about. It. It's like, hmm, where's an ideal place to kill someone? I'll tell you where. The fucking Oasis of Fear, bitch. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we return, we're going to talk more Gialli, directed by Umberto Lindsay here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Make them die slowly. I seem to get a perverted kick out of making the poor son of a bitch suffer. No! Go, go! But they made one mistake. They got caught. And when you get caught in this jungle, there's no bail and no jail. There's just punishment and pain. Cruel, barbaric, primitive. For what they've done, make them die slowly. And let me die soon too, please. Welcome back. We're talking about the Giallos of Umberto Lindsay here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. This next one is probably what most of you would consider the most traditional of Giallos he made. There's a Black Love Killer for one. It's from 1972. It stars Antonio Sabata Sr., not to be confused with his son, who starred in a ton of Eurocrime films like Crime Busters and Gang War in Milan. German actress Usi Glass. Sorry if I fucked that up, but we're just going to go with that. It was in several creamy films, which are the, as mentioned earlier, the predecessor to the Giallo. And Marissa Mel, who's best known for starring in Mario Bava's Danger Diabolic, as well as Lucio Fulci's first Giallo perversion story. We're talking about Seven Bloodstained Orchids. For those who haven't seen it, a woman who survived a failed murder attempt by the person dubbed as the Half Moon Killer by the police, and her husband must now find the connecting threads between herself six other women, and the killer before the killer strikes again trying to murder her. You know, it. the movie was credited, but is not an actual adaptation of any Edgar Wallace story. That had, probably has to do with the German co-production, since like a lot of creamies were based on Edgar Wallace stories. But it's actually based, although loosely, on a book called Rendezvous in Black by pulp writer Cornell Woolrich, who contemporary with Dashiell Hammond and um, Raymond Chandler. Although, more or less, the only thing Lindsay took from this movie was, you know, basically an accidental death spawns a series of revenge-filled murders. So, probably not enough to really credit because, but it was an influence on it. Now, this was the first of three films that Lindsay directed that were released in 1972. He also made his very first cannibal movie, Man from Deep River, and sandwiched it in between his last Giallo collaboration with Carol Baker, Knife of Ice. You just saw this movie, just like Oasis Fear, for the first time, and you had a vastly different opinion of it, didn't you? I, I well, I don't, I don't love it. It's kind of a. I thought it was kind of a snooze fest. If I could be, if I could be really honest, um, I appreciate all the Half Moon Killer stuff and like the the Moon Pendant thing and all. Like it's it's cool, it's cool, but I don't know that I would say that it was fun. You know the. There's just something about Lindsay making a very traditionally, or at least in the how people traditionally think of Giallo's, that just didn't quite work. I mean, this is definitely Argento chasing. Let's mm-hmm. just be honest with it. But I will say the first 15 minutes has two really, really graphic and really well done murder sequences. It's the hooker that gets beat 
over the head with a two by four or a stick or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then the woman that has the cats. Now the killer does get on my bad side because they poisoned this lady's cats beforehand, but obviously the cats weren't harmed or anything because they're just like laying around chilling and she's freaking out like, Oh my God, my cats are poisoned. But when the cats are just like licking themselves and not doing shit. <laughs> and then there's the attempted murder, which is the third one. So it has a really strong 15 minutes and I do like this movie, but I also have built up a tolerance for, tedious giallo plots they either tedious or they're convoluted or sometimes they can both be a little bit of column a column b mm-hmm. this one's kind of one of those so if depending on what your tolerance is for like tedious plots i can see why you would be like what huh but you know as we stated this is very traditional this was also Lindsay's first yellow with a black glove killer and there are some nasty kills throughout the movie we mentioned the first two the big one is the power drill murder which Lindsay always made a point that he did it first before brian de palma did it in body double i guess at this point we should also talk about the brian de palma giallo connection now it, it's an interesting thing because de palma always claimed he never saw any of those movies even though it seems clear if you watch enough giallos that like they were influenced on his work. I mean, Dress to Kill is like essentially the American equivalent of a giallo. It's not a slasher movie. It operates completely on a giallo level. When you did the uh, when you did those screenings that you screened all the De Palma stuff, um, was there any kickback or at least was there any say discourse as far as that those not being giallos were you challenged? Did anyone even just want to talk about it? You know, for the you know. I think people got the premise of what it was, yeah. and that January Giallo was just a blanket term, because a lot of people consider Suspiria a Giallo, even though I personally don't. I also don't consider Inferno a Giallo, because I think they're more supernatural horrors. Yes, there's obviously Giallo-esque moments in it, but I feel like they're definitely more supernatural, occult-ish. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of Giallos that have occult elements, case in point, all the colors are dark and things like that, but like... This one moves towards like a supernatural, those two movies move towards a supernatural realm that really Giallo's kind of flirted with but never went full in. And that's why I don't think Suspiria and Inferno aren't Giallo's. There's right. other people that will swear it up, up and down they are, but it's a fun debate. And obviously if you want to come on and debate us, hit us up on social media. We'll bring you on and we'll, we'll debate the Giallo-ness of Suspiria and Inferno. Yeah. Either but, way, they made for great shows, so. Yeah, it made for great go. shows. But... Go back to the De Palma aspect of it. Now, De Palma swore he was—he didn't even really know who Dario Argento was. Now, when I showed Dress to Kill and Tenebrae together, I had Nancy Allen as a guest. She told me right before I was going to do the Q&A for Dress to Kill, and I actually talked about it in the Q&A because I thought it was really cool, that she actually auditioned for the role that went to Irene Miracle in Inferno. And at the time, it was supposed to be her and James Woods in Inferno, which, if you imagine, would have been like... Hmm. Kind of an interesting movie. It's like, there's part of me that really would love to see that version. And she talked about, like, meeting Argento and him doing audition and being, like, really in love with her and, like, you know, running around her like he was holding a camera and, like, figuring out how to film her. And the reason why she ended up not doing Inferno was because the the water sequence in it, which is probably the most famous sequence in Inferno, where the Irene Miracle's character is trying to go get the key that she dropped underwater. Because Nancy Allen's afraid of drowning. The underwater scenes in, in Inferno are anxiety-inducing, to, oh, it, to be sure. It, it, it's fucking great. But, you know, the Palma says, like, oh, I've never seen a giallo. You know, I'm inspired by Hitchcock. And, like, yeah, dude, but I kind of get the impression that you've seen a giallo and you just don't want to admit it. And <laughs> the fact that, like, your wife at the time went and met the quintessential giallo king. Come on now, man. We don't believe you, buddy. I mean, because I think Dress to Kill and Inferno both came out in 1980, 81 era. I don't have the exact dates, but, you know, it's, you know, De Palma definitely has used giallo moments, and they're definitely in body double. And, honestly, the, the drill murder body double is way more graphic than what Inverno Lindsay did in Seven Bloodstained Orchids. But Lindsay did do it first. What, uh, what year did uh, Dress to Kill come out? I believe it was like 1980, 81. Okay, so still kind of in the same realm. Like just this, th- that, and uh, Body Double, both. Again, whether they're classic giallos or not, like they certainly fit into this world. 
Oh, definitely. I think De Palma, out of most American filmmakers that have attempted to bring Giallo influence to their films, whether admittedly or not, like, it, it's almost perfect. Like, you know, if he was in Italy, he might be, like, given Argento a run for his money in his Giallo stuff. Now, a couple other things before we move off of uh, Seven Bloodstained Orchids. Uh, it features a pretty rocking Riz Artelani score. You know, Riz Artelani, best known for doing Cannibal Holocaust and things like that. The only issue with this score is that eh, it's kind of a little bit similar to the score he did for one of Lindsay's um, Carol Baker Giallo's So Sweet, So Perverse, and a little bit of Lucio Fulci's Perversion Story, which he also did the score for. Now, this is, I found, interesting. Years later, Lindsay was originally supposed to be the director on a shot in a Florida Italian production. You know, one of my favorite, like, subgenres that I've just kind of made up in the last few months that we've been talking about a lot. He was supposed to direct this movie called Nightmare Beach. And he ended up saying he didn't direct it. There's, there's some debate on it. Originally, Lindsay turned down directing Nightmare Beach because he said the plot was too similar to Seven Bloodstained Orchids. Having watched both those movies... I don't think they operate the same other than like revenge motivated murders. I mean, there's probably more of a point to the murders in Seven Bloodstained Orchids where the killer in Nightmare Beach just drives a motorcycle that can electrocute people and then electrocutes people otherwise. It's not really the same. So I I don't know. Lindsay said some crazy shit. He I mean, we're talking about a man that compared Nightmare City to Philadelphia on talking about the AIDS epidemic, so Yeah, you could you always think about maybe doing a double feature of those. Could always do it. Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Nightmare Beach? No, like, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, Nightmare <laughs> City. <laughs> I, I'm sure that'll go over well. Oh, Christ, man. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we return, we're going to talk about more Umberto Lindsay here on the Cinematic Void Podcast, January Giallo edition. Don't move, anybody! This is a bad... Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Oh, my God! You heard me? Don't... Oh. Squads are in position, sir. Marksmen on all the rooftops. Developments? No, nothing new, sir. They're sticking to their ultimatum. So eat it. Warren, well, you're kidding, huh? Not in the least. Now go on, eat it. So I'll eat it. Watch. Get her, get her to shut her mouth or I'll shut it for her. Shut up, I said. Shut your mouth, you bitch. Shut up. Put a bullet in it. You know what we need to beat it? A special squad with the authorized backing of the law that can fight these bastards with freedom in their own backyard. How come you didn't knock off that son of a bitch inspector? Yeah, it would've been easy. But when I go for him, I want to be face to face. I'm gonna have that fucking son of a bitch puke with fright. Yes, and they're often valid, my dear. My God, Leo, you're so fanatical, you're blind to everything else. You're not helping very much, are you? Go ahead, Pugliana. <laughs> Look, Inspector, you give me a decent break and I'll make you a deal. I'll tell you all I know about Ferrander. Let's hear it. I know where Ferrander is. He's... Welcome back. We've been talking about the Giallos of Umberto Lindsay here on the Cinematic Void Podcast, January Giallo edition. Up next is his 1974 movie, Spasmo which is kind of a funky title. I think it's Italian for spasms, like muscle spasms or whatever kind of other spasms you have. What kind of spasms can you have? Orgasmo, spasmo. What yeah. is up? What's up? I don't know, man. He, <laughs> Lindsay's got some crazy-ass fucking titles here. Anyway, the film stars Robert Hoffman, Susie Kendall, who has a, quite a bit of Giallo Street cred because she was in Argento's Bird with a Crystal Plumage and, of course, Sergio Martino's Torso! 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 And the film also features the man from Deep River himself and beloved villain of many Italian genre films, Ivan Rizamov. For those you haven't seen it, Christian, played by Robert Hoffman, and his girlfriend are taking a walk on a deserted beach when they discover a woman's body lying there. A closer look proves that she's alive. Next day, Christian meets her again at a yacht party and they fall in love. Because that's what rich assholes do. They go to a yacht party. Have you ever been on a yacht, Nick? Nope. Me neither. I've been on a boat. I've been on a boat. I've been in a canoe. I've never been, been on a yacht. yacht. Yeah. Never been on a cruise either. You ever done a cruise? 
No, I've done like a, uh, what do you call it when you go across to like, from like France to the UK? What is that? A ferry. A I've, ferry. Been, I've been on a ferry. ferry. <laughs> so neither of us been on a yacht, so we don't relate to this. But anyway, he meets this girl they found on the beach again on a yacht. Fall in love. Later at a nearby motel, something weird happens as they prepare to go to bed together. An intruder breaks in and starts beating Christian who accidentally shoots him with his own gun. A few hours later, they find out the corpse is missing and a series of weird incidents takes place. Now, before we get into our thoughts on the film, let's hear what Lindsay himself thought about it. In multiple interviews, he referred to the film as terrible. That's terrible. However you wish to say it. (laughs) He was not a fan of this movie. And from his interview from the excellent book, if you don't have it yet, Spaghetti Nightmares, which is basically a collection of Italian actors and filmmakers, like, basically talking shit on each other. I mean, it's more than that. It's a really informative book, but there's a lot of shit talking. Lindsay is shit talking extraordinaire. He's, I'd say he's almost up there with Fulci with the amount of shit he talked about other filmmakers, actors, whatever. Lindsay liked to talk some shit. And also say some other ridiculous stuff. But this is what he said from this book. Spasmo had a ridiculously complicated plot, which made no sense at all. Story was a dead loss from the start. I shouldn't even agree to direct it. Welcome to Giallo's, Umberto. I mean, it's a weird thing. Now, watching Spasmo, and I never knew this until I saw the info on it, apparently Lucio Fulci was the originally intended director. And... When you think, when you look at Spasmo and kind of compare it to what the Giallos that Fulci made, I think this was more in his wheelhouse than Umberto Lindsay. But, you know, Lindsay made it, and I kind of like it, even though this movie is just fucking weird and it, it's very ridiculous and makes no sense. And that's even for Giallo standards, which is just saying something, really. I mean, it, it's fucking ludicrous, but, you know, that's part of the film's charm. It's just batshit insane, which Lindsay, regardless of him agreeing or not, is just something he started to do more and more in his filmography as like time went on. I don't know if it was budgets. I don't know if it was just the projects that he's been offering. He just, when he was making movies outside of his crime movies, which like his bombastic style really fit crime movies, but like at a certain point when he did things outside of it, they were just bonkers. Like, I, I don't know why. I don't think he even knew why. I think maybe a couple times he just took a project like, fuck, I need to get this done. What's the fastest way to get this done? Zoom lens. Go batshit crazy with a zoom. This movie is probably the most excessive Italian filmmaker zoom lens use of any Italian filmmaker using a zoom lens. And the Italians love their zoom lens, but like this one is just like, it's zooming everywhere. It's going <laughs> zooming here, zooming there. It's just... I'm surprised they didn't break the fucking zoom lens for the amount of zooms are in it. I mean, if you want to have fun when you watch Spasmo, I recommend having a drinking game. And every time you see a zoom, take a shot. You'll probably be on the fucking floor within, like, the first five minutes. But, you know, it kind of adds to the charm of things. Like, you know, it, it's just it's just a weird fucking movie. And, you know, the other thing that makes it weird is, like, a choice that Lindsay actually added in because he's like, this movie doesn't work. You know what it needs? mannequins so he fills the fucking movie full of mannequins now bob mario baba he was he liked to use mannequins in his movie you can see him in um, blood and black lace and i think there's a couple other things he's used mannequins in but like this movie just has an excessive amount of mannequin flashbacks mannequin montages just i'm surprised kim Cattrall didn't show up and like come to life when someone put a necklace on her that's how many fucking mannequins are in this movie it's creepy shit Creepy shit. Actually, actually, mannequins are pretty creepy. I'm surprised more people haven't really used them. Like, they'll pop up in horror movies from time to time. But the ones in this movie are kind of creepy because they're... I don't know what's going on. It's just it's just a weird touch. and just kind of adds to the quirkiness of the whole thing. And, you know, I know Lindsay said this movie was a piece of shit. Well, I actually just said it was terrible, but... Let's just assume he just really, really didn't like it. But I think for all its weirdness, it's worth checking out. It also came in at a time where, like, he was definitely more into making his, like, crime movies than, like, other genres. So maybe his heart's not in it. But, like, I give him credit for trying to make something out of something he didn't really give a shit about. So the the one thing that kind of stands out the most from Spasmo than say like Seven Blood Saint Orchids that came out like a few years before this is that the the murders in it aren't that violent. 
they're kind of like subdued and like they're kind of played different they're not like gory they're just like it just kind of adds to the weirdness it's like it almost comes between the zooms the quirkiness the mannequins and like just the aesthetic choices overall it just it kind of plays like a surrealist film in a weird way I mean, it's even illogical for surrealism. I enjoy it, but like, it might not be the giallo for you. But I do encourage you as you run out of Argentos and Martinos and Babas and all the big classics, give Spasmo a try. Just, just to say you saw it, because isn't that what you should do? You should see things that are weird and wild and make absolutely no fucking sense. Now... The thing that kind of does hamper Spasmo is the lead actor in the movie, Robert Hoffman. He's just kind of flat throughout it, like he's essentially a 2 by 4 on screen. And as Troy Howarth said in his book, So Deadly, So Perverse, Volume 2, he wears two basic expressions film, smug and constipated. Which doesn't really equate to, like, a character you can relate to in a giallo. It's just like... Wow, this guy's going through a lot, but he just looks like he needs to take a shit. <laughs> but, you know, the rest of the cast kind of picks up the slack for him. Susie Kendall is really great in it, even though she doesn't really have a lot to work with. Actually, no one in this movie has a lot to work with, because none of it makes any fucking sense. But the, the Shining Star, who usually is the Shining Star, even the most kind of bad shit or not very good Italian horror movie or genre movie for that matter, is Ivan Reisimov. Ivan cannot give a bad performance. He just kind of goes all in, and like this one is no exception. He's just got this weird, sinister star quality that I think lack in movie villains now. You know, I, I, I haven't really watched a lot of new movies this year, mostly because I don't want to pay like 20 bucks to watch something I wouldn't want to pay in the theater to see, but, I, you know, I kind of wonder if, People would like Wonder Woman 84 more if Ivan Razumov was the villain. I don't know. I haven't seen I haven't seen Wonder Woman or Wonder Woman 84. I'm just pointing out there because I saw complaints that the villain wasn't as sinister as evil needs be. But the, then the true villain in that movie is the the person wearing the Cro-Mag shirt. Anyway, it, this one uh, it's Scott Morricone doing the score. It does something that Wonder Woman 84 also one of doesn't the, have. One of its its best, although it's maybe not the best Morricone score. It, the the main theme is pretty good in it, to be honest. But the rest of it is just kind of like, eh. I mean, it was at the point he was just cranking out scores anyway. And I kind of get the feeling, especially as we talk about all these later Umberto Lindsay Giallos, he just didn't have the budget he once did. And yeah, he had Ritz Oratani and Ennio Marconi, and later we're going to talk about Bruno Nicolata, who do fantastic scores, but it wasn't like he was getting like their... A-plus scores. He was getting there like, oh, shit, what do I have laying around? Here you go, Umberto. Put that in. But anyway, it's, you know, check out Spasmo. It's probably better than Wonder Woman 84. I don't know. It for sure is. It for sure is. <laughs> but we're going to take another break, and when we return, we will not be talking about Wonder Woman 84 anymore, but more Umberto Lindsay on the Cinematic Void Podcast. <laughs> Spasmo. 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 I killed him. I killed the man at the motel. I killed him. I can't accuse you of killing ghosts in the night. Who am I to say that any killing took place? Ghosts in the night. I'm not a strong woman, Christian. I've been living in a nightmare since yesterday. And you, Malcolm, are part of that nightmare. Nightmare. Listen, if you're afraid everyone around you is your enemy, you better just disappear. What else can you do? Do you need her help or don't you trust her? Welcome back. We've been talking about the Giallos of Inverto Lindsay here on the Cinematic Boy podcast for January Giallo. And we're going to wrap things up, at least for this episode, talking about them, with a movie he made in 1975. 
is called Eyeball, aka Red Cats in a Glass Maze, which is the literal English translation of the Italian title and probably the most giallo as fuck title you could possibly give a movie. It was also released under the titles The Secret Killer, The Devil's Eye, Wide-Eyed in the Dark, and to make things even more confusing because... It's Umberto Lindsay. It's the title of the movie. It's got to be confusing. It was released in Canada as Eye in the Labyrinth, not to be confused with Mario Kana's Giallo from 1972, which was called Eye in the Labyrinth. The film stars Martin Bricard, who was in Tinto Bra's Paprika and Sergio Martino's Western A Man Called Blade. And the movie also has John Richardson, who appeared in Mario Bava's Black Sunday and Sergio Martino's Torso. That's right. <laughs> I think we talk more about Torso than any film on this podcast. Oh, Jesus. For those of you who haven't witnessed Eyeball, a.k.a. Red Cats in a Glass Maze, the movie's about a maniac killer in a red cape and a hood that's killing off American tourists on a tour bus by gouging out their eyeballs. Kind of. Kind of. I mean, it's a pretty straight-ahead plot here. Again, pulling a quote from Spaghetti Nightmares, Lindsay stated this about the film. It was shot in several poorly equipped locations around Barcelona with mediocre actors. The film itself is not bad, but the budget was low and it shows. Way to sell your film, Umberto. Now, it, again, this is Umberto kind of treading back into more traditional giallo, except for the fact the black glove killer is actually a red glove killer, wearing a whole red raincoat and hood and mask thing. And actually, that's a very striking thing in the movie. It's really kind of a unique quirk to it although the movie itself is kind of like it's very chasing argento because i think i can't remember if this movie came out before or after deep red drop because they both came out in 75 so that was the beginning of kind of a, a slight second wave of giallos because the the main bulk of them came in like late 60s early 70s and then it kind of faded off because a lot of those directors started making Eurocrime and stuff and then Argento dropped Deep Red and then a whole bunch of people rushed back to make some more. I feel like it was chasing it. I don't have the dates, but like my guess is based on everything I know about Italian film, this was chasing after Argento. This is a this is a fun one. I definitely thought of it as more of a slasher, although it did have the the gloved killer, although the gloves again are red. Really striking. Fucking it's cool, man, and uh, I love just, like, bumping off dumb tourists, you know, kind of Hatchet, something like that. Like, surely inspiration for Hatchet and things like that. It's just like, yeah, let's fucking, let's, let's go, on a, little, go Take- on a little cruise and fucking get bumped off. It's fun. Have you ever done a bus tour, Nick? No, I actually haven't ever done that, no. Yeah, it, I've never, like, done a long, like, journey via bus. I don't know why we keep mentioning this, because we talked about never being on a yacht and how we traveled by sea. I figure we talk about buses. I will say the plot is more sensical than Lindsay's previous Gialli, Spasmo, but Eyeball also kind of leans into, like, the batshit crazy, like, period he was kind of kicking off, where, like, he just, like, gave no fucks, just kind of went all in with all of his, like, insane, like, tendencies. The film is just not subtle at all. Like, it's very violent, very nasty trashy over top but it does have time to take an extended break in a dance club where people can groove to probably the best cue in the movie by um composer bruno nicolotti now you weren't really a fan of the score and i know you're a big bruno nicolotti guy yeah the the score was actually kind of uh i don't know it's kind of boring i guess (laughs) I, i mean his stuff is usually rips and this one was just a little too a little too laid back it just didn't really do much for me i i do like the main theme the like and the the scene you mentioned just now in the in the club when it's kind yeah. of popping off a little bit that's cool but yeah I mean, mm, it's kind of a kind of a letdown overall I I kind of you know I I kind of wonder about Italian composers that they have shit laying down or they repurpose scores from other movies and just slightly change I mean it was a common thing even Ennio Morricone did it and like Ennio Morricone is one of the most celebrated film composers period regardless of country genre or whatever they they kind of recycled and they definitely had some cues that like well. If you're only paying me this much, I'll slide you, like, this okay track. I mean, I don't know, but th- that main theme is pretty good. Now, my favorite scene in the movie is actually when one of the tourists is going through a haunted house at, like, I forget where the hell they stopped at, but it's, like, really creepy, w- really well done. And actually, I think they use the same theme that's in that dance club scene anyway, the do 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 Like, it's a really effective murder scene. Even though, like, the 
the murder's not on camera, but it's set up really well, and I think that's my favorite sequence in the movie. Now, one thing about Eyeball that actually strikes me is the lack of actual eyeball violence on screen. It's just the first one, right? Yeah, like, it's, it's really kind just... Of the... It's the first one, and occasionally you'll see an eyeball tossed on the ground here and there, but, like, there, there's no, like, Fulci-esque, like, knife going into an eyeball kind of thing. In that department, it's like, if you're going to call your movie Eyeball, I I expect, and I think when I first saw it, I was expecting nothing but, like, major eye violence. We want eye violence. Yeah, I mean, go for it. I don't know. Now, the twist and killer reveal in the movie is pretty well done. Although, the motivation is kind of like, dare I say, borderline stupid. If I was killing people, I would think I would have a a much broader motivation. I'm not going to spoil it because I want people to actually go out and see Eyeball. I know we usually spoil shit, but like, I feel like the twist is so good that you actually don't see it coming. And when it does, it's like, oh shit, it's that person? And then you hear the motivation, it's like, really? You're killing people because of that? I mean, each their own. You know, I'm not a psychopath, so I don't... Whatever whatever makes your mind go insane makes you want to rip out people's eyeballs. Each their own, I guess. Now, aesthetically, we've already talked about Lindsay again subverts the Black Love Killer with the red one. And that whole outfit, like the whole ensemble was fucking great. And to kind of throw it back to what you were talking about, like, this operates more as a slasher, and I agree with you on that, because I think with this film and Torso, it's kind of like the proto-slasher thing. We're moving out of kind of the quirks of Giallo, while still kind of having them, but kind of operating more on, like, the stalk and slash aspects of, you know, slasher movies like Friday the 13th and Halloween, stuff like that. It's kind of a transition. It doesn't make you care as much about the, the mystery of it. You just want to. You really just want to see the the slashings. You want to. You want to see these people get fucked up. You want to. But like, it never made me care about the mystery. And whereas, like, I think that the in a giallo, I want to care more about the mystery. I never give a fuck about a mystery in a Friday the Thirteenth movie. No. Although, I mean, obviously, it's not a mystery. <laughs> but like, well, you know what I'm saying? Like in a slasher, like it's never like, oh, I'm fucking. I got all these questions. Yeah, I mean, maybe the first Friday Thirteenth when it turns out to be the mom or yeah. Jason's mom. There's a little giallo esque moment to it, but like, it definitely, it's de- definitely heading towards body count and less right. of like reasons, be it flimsy, of why people are getting offed, which is usually in the giallo. Like, someone's getting murdered because they saw something or mm-hmm. they know something or like that kind of stuff. And this is just like, fuck you, I'm taking your eye. Hell yeah, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but you know it again we already talked about how this is chasing argento and like it's even in the italian title like red cats in a glass maze like argento had his famous like animal trilogy with bird with a crystal plumage cat o nine tails and four flies of gray velvet it was a trend for a while because there's lots of movies that black cat in the title fulci had um don't torture duckling and things like that so they just put a bunch of words in a fucking hat I mean, there there is a website that's a Giallo title generator that you just hit refresh and it just creates ridiculous Giallo titles. And, like, some are pretty good and sound like real movies. Others don't quite work as well. But, like, you know, it's another reason why I like Giallos because they have ridiculous titles that I don't know what the expectation to have. It's like, what's your expectation when you hear Red Cats in a Glass Maze? What the fuck are you about to watch? Dude, I'm still I'm confused by this. Yeah. <laughs> but then when you when you call your movie Eyeball... What are you expecting? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> let's go. Let's see some eyeball stabbing. <laughs> I kind of like the original title better, although eyeball is kind of short to the point. Now, speaking of Argento, funny enough, when Eyeball got its U.S. release, it was actually paired up with um, a second feature, which was Dario Argento's Suspiria. So it's, it's kind of a weird double feature, because especially Eyeball was the lead-off. Could you imagine sitting through Eyeball and be like, oh yeah, I wonder what's next, and hadn't seen Suspiria, which is probably considered one of the great horror movies, if not Italian horror movies ever made. It's the equivalent of a low-budget regional slasher being paired up with like something like a, a big studio slasher. It's like sticking um, like Blood Rage in front of you know a Friday the 13th sequel or something like that. It, it has its charms, but it's definitely not going to be the same kind of money put forward. To kind of close things out, talk about Eyeball, it had a series of hilarious, crazy 
asinine fucking taglines to go with it. And I'm just going to read them off to you. A stabbing nightmare becomes a living terror. How's that move you? I'm just glad that's not the name of the film. <laughs> a blinding vision of horror. Yeah, it's not... <laughs> It's nothing. It does nothing for me. I mean, at least that blinding eyeball, you know, it's it kind of goes in. The most terrifying <laughs> vision of horror. I, I, vision, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah, I, yeah. that's kind of overselling it. Eyeball will grab you. <laughs> I don't know about that one. You may never live to see the end of it. I mean, maybe if you saw the movie on 42nd Street and went to the bathroom and got stabbed or, like, robbed or something like that. I think most people made it to the end of the eyeball with unharmed. I see what they did there. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Jesus Christ. I miss marketing. I miss clever, stupid marketing. All right, we're going to take another quick commercial break. When we return, it's time for Read, Watch, and Listen on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Commit yourself to an experience of absolute evil. A journey of fear beyond your nightmares. From earthly torment to hellish horror. Eyeball will grab you. Suspiria won't let you go. Eyeball and Suspiria, the ultimate in total terror. Rated R. Welcome back. It's now time for... on the Cinematic Void podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since the last time we recorded a podcast. When did we last record, Nick? Was it late November, early December? I think probably the first couple of days of December. It's been a little while. And, you know, I'm going to give away a little bit of the secret sauce, but we did both those episodes back-to-back, so we probably have plenty of things we read, watch, or listen to. Maybe. Maybe you do. I don't know if I do. i got to look at my list. I've been I've been keeping track because previously when we started this, I was just winging shit. But now I actually have to write stuff down because I'd forget. Don't want to do it. But anyway, Nick, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? Man, I haven't, I haven't read a fucking thing, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I haven't really been listening to much either. Uh, I've just kind of been throwing on like Alchemist or Knowledge or one of those like beat guys and just kind of throw it on random. I haven't like actively been listening to anything. But I have been watching just fucking hours upon hours of, of movies, like, every day. I got, recently got obsessed with uh, Kizowski. So, I, I, although I'd seen them before, I just, like, all in one day, I rewatched uh, the Three Colors trilogy. Wow. Which is, you know, of course, amazing. Blue and, blue and red especially, but white definitely has a, a special place in my heart, too. That one's a lot of fun. Uh, and then that led me to... I've been meaning to check out uh, the Decalogue series that Kieslowski also did for uh, Polish television, which is, like, some people consider it a film, some people consider it television. I mean, it was television, but films on television, I guess you could say. Yeah. And then I also... I watched uh, Blind Chance, Kiristami, the Iranian director. I, I'm probably butchering his name. But uh, he he did one called Where's My Friend's House? And then after Where's My Friend's House was Life and Nothing More and then uh, Through the Olive Trees. Uh, and then I also watched his uh, Taste of Cherry uh, where it's just this guy who wants to commit suicide and he's like going around town uh, trying to talk people into burying him after he commits suicide. With the Kizowski stuff, I watched uh, The Double Life of Veronique Oh, that that's a fucking great one. Which is a fucking banger, man. I loved it. That that might be my favorite of his films. And like I love Blue. Like Blue yeah. I think is a masterpiece. But that one just I think of that, that movie like randomly at times just because it affected me. And I haven't watched it in years, but like it just stuck with me. So I'm glad you checked that one out. Because I, I remember when you got your own box set and I was like, make sure you check that one out too. So oh, yeah. And then followed up with Dead Ringers. Ooh. And I gotta say, man, I think that's a great double feature. Oh that that's uh Maybe something to think about in the future. Just saying, <laughs> if I could be, if I have, if I could be that guy for once, I don't do it often. I don't. I, I rarely, rarely, rarely am I that guy. So I will take this opportunity to say, perfect double feature. I would love to see it for the void. Might be too artsy for the <laughs> void, but I, I actually, that is a damn good. One. I the other one I would throw in there, which I don't know if you've seen. It's a little closer to Dead Ringers though. Um, is Peter Greenway's Zed and Two Knots? Oh, I have knots. It actually came out before um, Dead Ringers. It's basically about two twins that work at a zoo. Oh, nice. 
it's a fucking wild movie and like it's creepy it's insane i don't i i have a dvd of it i don't think it's gotten any kind of like bigger release in a while but like okay. it's called zed and two knots which is zoo cool bud yeah, yeah. If, if, if since you're on that trajectory like it would make for a good triple feature hell yeah man a lot of, a lot of twinning <laughs> there you go but yeah that's about it for me aside from these uh aside from watching the lensy stuff recently um how about you man I mean, honestly, I the only thing I've been reading, I pulled out my copy of Spaghetti Nightmares and um Troy Howard's like volume one and two of um So Deadly, So Perverse. Just basically do a research Giallo research, Giallo shit if you were. And obviously I've been watching some of the Lindsay stuff. I've been kinda like skimming through, not as in depth because like I know these a lot of these were first time watches. A lot of these were like rewatches for me. Actually, everything we're gonna be talking about in January Giallo is just rewatches, but like some more recent than others, like I'm looking forward to rewatching the Carol Baker um, or Burr Lindsay set again because, like, like I said, that was my favorite favorite Blu-ray release of 2020. So I'm kind of stoked nice. to watch it again. Other stuff I watched that was non-Giallo was I've uh, been watching a bunch of riff tracks. With my wife, we watched Jacko, aka Shit Pickle. There's a riff <laughs> tracks of it. Nice. And, and honestly, it, it's a lot of fun. It it makes the movie. I I don't Jacko's acquired taste be honest but like watching the riff track thing kind of adds to it especially when they bag on fucking Carradine who's been dead for like eight <laughs> years when the movie came out nice and poor Cameron Mitchell so that was fun also watched the riff tracks Deadly Prey which again Cameron Mitchell again I'm not trying to do this on purpose he just happened to be in Jacko and Deadly Prey <laughs> also watched Oblivion which was a full moon production kind of like a sci-fi western thing it was a good riff track not necessarily a great movie um, also watch some riff tracks, Christmas shorts, and they have a couple of live shows from San Francisco Sketchfest where they like do live stuff. So I've been watching a lot of those, just kind of like late night, don't want to be too committed to something kind of thing. So that's what I'm being thrown on. I also recently got my Black Friday orders from both Severn Films and Vinegar Syndrome, so I've been slowly ticking away at those. Um, I watched Alphabet City, which is actually from a newer label called Fun City Editions, and it's kind of a New York kind of, I don't want to say neo-noir, but it's about a drug dealer who's trying to get out and the mob's chasing him. It's a really cool movie, has a really cool soundtrack. I actually saw it years ago, so I was kind of like, oh cool, this is on Blu-ray, I'm going to have to snag it. Also has a Michael Winslow in a non-police academy role. Oh, nice. Just some food for thought, because like, usually when you think Michael Winslow, you just like... <laughs> But that was really cool. I also watched The Black Cat, a.k.a. Demon 6, by um, Luigi Cosi, who did Contamination and um, things like that. This one, I I never had seen it before, and Severin actually got this out of the MGM vaults, because they and Vinegar Syndrome teamed up and got a license to deal with MGM to get some of the weirder titles out. And this was one of them. And like I said, it was sold in Italy as Demon 6, which is funny when you think of demons. There's only one. Demons 1 and 2 are the official two, but then there's... A whole bunch of other ones oh, that have shit. been released as Demons 3. Like, Michele <laughs> Sovi's The Church was supposed to be Demons 3, but Lamberto mm. Baba made a movie called The Org that was released as Demons 3. Anyway, this movie's kind of bonkers because it's like a meta horror movie where these filmmakers are trying to do a remake or a reimagining of Suspiria. They're like... And there's a couple moments where they play the Suspiria theme in there when they talk about it. Not sure how... I mean, Luigi Cosi actually is the... He run, helps run Dario Argento's Profondo Rosso store in Italy. So, nice. so they're boys. So I, I think it's fine. It's a pretty bonkers movie. Pretty gory. Got some decent special effects. Definitely pick up that Blu-ray. Also watch Rest in Pieces, which was kind of a perennial VHS title that I remember seeing all the time. And I, I definitely rented it. I hadn't seen it since the VHS days. And Vinegar Syndrome just did a new Blu-ray of it. It, it You know, watching it now, it's kind of like on par with um, Dead and Buried kind of theme wise so if you like dead and buried you should like rest in pieces it's pretty bonkers pretty sleazy it's directed by jose ramon laraz who also did edge of the axe and a bunch of other like kind of spanish exploitation movies so definitely check that out i also watched two films by director ruben galano jr from mexico i watched don't panic which is kind of a nightmare on elm street ripoff oh, i've been i've been wanting to see that one oh it's great like the main guy wears like dinosaur pajamas and he's like 18 <laughs> Cool. like at home screaming mad george did the effects so the effects are really good Hell actually yeah. i'd say elm street meets evil dead with a little bit witch war thrown in there fuck yeah good time and also watch his first movie cemetery of terror which stars hugo stiglitz from umberto lenzi's immortal classic nightmare city pretty fun like kind of little zombie movie again also a little occulty 
I got a ton more things to watch in that set. I finally got my copy of Fade to Black, the new Beastmaster, which I'm kind of looking forward to watching because I haven't seen Beastmaster in like forever. Okay. And I'm kind of happy that Don Coscarelli got a nice edition of it because he finally got the rights to the movie back, which is why it's coming out now. Cool. Uh, Listening-wise, I just found out on my way over here that Boldy James has a new record. He, oh, it's shit. A, it's a collab with Real Bad Man. It's got a bunch of guests on, including Stove God Cooks, Mayhem Lauren. It's it's kind of interesting because, like, you know, you got used to hearing Boldy James on all these, like, Alchemist beats, and now he's, like, doing, <laughs> doing songs with other people. So it's really cool. It's kind of... I like this a little bit better in the Versace tapes on the first listen. It's definitely also kind of jazzy, too, in spots, but cool. I think you'll dig it. Anyway, that wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void Podcast. we got three more episodes coming up for this series, our January Giallo series, that is. We have two episodes focusing on Sergio Martino, one on the films he did with Edwidge Fennec, and then on some of these other Giallos, including Torso. Torso! Torso! And then we're going to wrap up our January Giallo series going back to Umberto Lenzi, talking about the films he made with Carol Baker, with filmmaker Travis Stevens. Really stoked to have Travis on for this, because I actually, he was looking for recommendations. I recommended him the set, and he's just like, this is fucking great. So it's kind of cool to, like, bring someone on who just got introduced to it and just really stoked for it. So I'm excited to have Travis on. I'm also excited to have Scott Carlson back on for the podcast, talking about Martino, since we were both huge Sergio Martino fans. So... Be on the lookout for that. Until next time, see you in the void. void.